right, welcome back to the last week in medicine, where we help keep you up to date on the latest internal medicine literature by sharing our favorite articles from the last week. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today we're welcoming back the prodigal co-host, Austin Rupp. Hey, Yo. Austin. It's hey, been, Stephen. It's been a while. It has been. Thanks for letting me come back. Please. I missed you. Share with our listeners what was so important that you couldn't join us for the last two weeks. Uh, night shifts. And backcountry skiing near Victor, Idaho. Hmm. We found a wolf kill site oh, on yeah, the way I saw out. Your that picture. was probably the cool. Like, I was convinced I was going to see a wolf, which which is like a life goal for you, right? Very much so. Yeah. After that happens, I can die happy. So mm. I was actually going to go back in and start just hucking cliffs and <laughs> doing crazy stuff if I saw a wolf. And I was convinced I was going to see one, but I didn't. Just their paw prints everywhere though so it was still pretty oh, really? sweet yeah the whole the whole like there was a deer carcass and it was just surrounded by paw prints and you could actually tell like they tracked this deer down a creek bed and like some of them would branch off up the creek to like keep it in the drick in mm-hmm. the ditch it was it was pretty sweet i like was imagining this my whole the whole way out and like Oh, I'm glad yeah. you didn't become part of the yeah. kill well, site. <laughs> me too, but that would actually be the best way for me to die. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a wolf in the wild. That was it. Yeah. So, that, I mean, skiing was also really good. We yeah. found some good snow on the north-facing aspects. Um, well, I'm happy for you. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I thought about you the whole time. I missed the podcast <laughs> the whole time. I, I thought about medical literature the whole mm, time. Mm-hmm. But um, That's good. it was a good time. Sweet. What have you been up to? As you actively track the coronavirus. Yeah, I've just been refreshing this (laughs) website that Johns Hopkins has a nice dashboard where you can track coronavirus. That's the best way to quell hysteria, I think, is to just refresh the browser every every three to five minutes. You know, you'd think the CDC would be putting out pretty up-to-date info, but they're not. I wonder why. they've done a really terrible job of testing in the U.S. And so, like, it's interesting on Twitter, you know, all these news sites are kind of working together to try to track the outbreak and like the New York Times is usually more up to date than the CDC but then I found the Johns Hopkins dashboard and it's like really up to date. I wonder how they're doing that. How is Hopkins the repository? Don't know know. but they have uh, right now they have 118,101 confirmed cases with 4,262 deaths so that's a case fatality rate of 3.6 percent but obviously we're really under testing in a lot of countries so including here in Utah. We found out today at our lunch meeting that we finally have a test available light, to light us. light, airy lunch talking about hospital. doomsday scenarios. Yeah, that was kind of an apocalyptic meeting. Yeah, I just ate a, a ton. <laughs> just stress eating. <laughs> yeah, it made me really excited for the next couple months. Yeah, yeah. We'll shout, out to, shout out to... Dr. Rupp Sr., who can be found on such programming as the uh, the Lou Dobbs show. and He uh, went on Lou Dobbs. He went on Lou Dobbs. Wow. But he's also, he was on the... That's messed up. ...the coronavirus <laughs> town hall with Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta. and oh, really? Just looking dour as, mm. as you can imagine. Just like his son. <laughs> but shout, yeah, shout out to UNMC, Dr. Rupp Sr., and uh, all the folks working hard to try and contain this thing, including us, I guess. But we're not. What are we doing? I don't know. I, I try to wash my hands. <laughs> I, I'm still touching my face a lot. I know. I know. Me too. It's so ingrained. Okay. Well, I feel like for the next, you know, several months, we're gonna have to have a COVID update. 
yeah, every probably. week. Probably. And uh, we'll just we'll, we'll say we've done that now. Okay, yeah, so come here for the most up-to-date. Actually, <laughs> no, no, that's, don't, don't do here. that. Okay. We're just a couple of jokers. Yeah. Uh, who's going to win in Michigan tonight? Joe. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I feel a little bad for Bernie, but, yeah, it's got to be Joe at this point. A lot has changed since we last talked about this. Yeah. We haven't had a chance to really dig down. Well, even, like, a week ago, it was Super Tuesday. Can you believe that was just a week ago? Things move quickly, man. (laughs) R.I.P. Elizabeth Warren is out of the race. She was my my gal. Yeah. I'm not going to share my vote. You're not going to goad me into it, but... Who'd you vote for? (laughs) Secret. You actually voted? I did vote, yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that tells you where we're at. How I think you voted for are. Joe. <laughs> Wait, as long as you didn't vote for Bloomberg. Blink twice if you voted for Bloomberg. <laughs> He's not blinking. Okay. We can keep our friendship. Well, uh, we got a couple articles. I feel like, you know, COVID has swamped the literature for sure. a little bit. For sure. So we did a little bit of that last week. It was a little slim pickings. Let's talk week. about the OG pandemic virus. What's that? HIV. Oh, <laughs> what does OG mean? Other original guy? gangster. The original gangster. Okay. Okay. The OG. The OG mm. pandemic. Take us back to All the right. 1980s. Yeah, so I'd like to talk about long-acting we got to decide how we're going to say these up front, these drugs. Cabotegravir. Cabotegravir and real pyrivine, real real piverin. You would be the worst infectious disease Real piverin. We'll go with real piverin. So um, long-acting cabotegravir and real piverin for maintenance of HIV-1 suppression in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. Um, It's by Dr. Susan Swindells, who I know personally at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So second shout out to UNMC. Look at you. Look at that. Nebraskans doing big things. You couldn't email her and ask her to come on the show? (laughs) She probably doesn't know who I am. I claim that I know her personally. She might know me from my last name, which is how a lot of people know me. Oh, you're Rupp's boy. (laughs) Oh, you're the disappointment. Okay. (laughs) Um, But anyway, she wrote the article. Cool, cool. So... uh, just a little bit of background. In 2016, an estimated 1.2 million persons were living with HIV in the United States. There were an estimated 38,500 new diagnoses, and 36.7 million people are currently infected worldwide. So this is still a very you know, significant global health issue. Um, antiretroviral therapy is the mainstay of treatment for HIV and increases immunologic function and lifespan of individuals infected with HIV. Um, Guideline-based therapy currently calls for daily oral lifelong therapy, which can be burdensome for a lot of patients. Yeah, I mean, just getting people to, like, take their aspirin is impossible. Right. Asking them to take their HIV meds, it's a big ask. Every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. Right. That's My, kind of my a... kids are on some drugs like that, and it's, like, around the clock. You can't miss a dose. Yeah, that would be tough. So... Um, There's increasing interest in alternative regimens with decreased dosing frequency that might increase satisfaction and adherence. Mm -hmm. So um, this trial was a phase three trial attempting to establish whether switching to long-acting cabotegravir, which is an integrase strand transfer inhibitor, plus rilpivirin, a second-generation nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. What's the mechanism of action of those, Jenkins? 
NNRTI? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, me either. So anyway, they were looking if the what long... What is this, step one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pass fail now, so you could still easily pass. Yeah, I'll just get those ones wrong. There you go. Um, anyway, they were looking at whether or not long-acting formulations of the medications are non-inferior to continuation of current oral therapy among adults with virologically suppressed HIV-1 infection. So this was a randomized multi-center parallel group open-label trial in which 618 patients were randomized to either long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirin or their current antiretroviral regimen. Uh, patients were greater than 18. They had to be on uninterrupted and unchanged antiretroviral therapy for the prior six months, um, although one regimen change was allowed. They also had to have no ev evidence of virological failure um, and had to have an HIV-1 RNA of less than 50 copies per milliliter at screening and once in the previous 6 to 12 months prior to screening. Mm -hmm. um, to maximize generalizability, patients who were taking abacavir plus dalutegravir and lamivudine were excluded because there was another trial that had a lot of those patients in them. And um, participants, participants were also excluded if they had evidence of active hep B infection, previous virologic failure, um, resistance mutations, or interruption of the current antiretroviral regimen within six months before screening. So um, patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion and stratified according to the third agent in their baseline ART regimen. Um, we're not going to talk too much about the dosing. They either received their current dosing or long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirin. Mm -hmm. um, they received oral meds for the first four weeks and then were switched to long-acting monthly injections. And those first four weeks were just to make sure they could tolerate mm -hmm. the therapy, that they didn't have any side effects or safety events before we dose them with a long-acting Exactly, exactly. Uh, they had monthly clinic visit, visits, and the trial was continued for 52 total weeks. The primary endpoint was the percentage of patients with HIV-1 RNA levels of 50 copies per ml or higher at week 48, and a secondary endpoint was 50 mLs, or 50 copies per ml or lower at the end of 48 weeks. Um, there were multiple other secondary endpoints that didn't turn out to be super um, exciting. Um, Non-inferiority of long-acting therapy was concluded if the upper limit of the 95% confidence interval for the difference between long and oral therapy was less than six percentage points. Mm -hmm. So they thought that sort of the benefits of the long-acting therapy um, and, and small differences in efficacy up to sort of six percentage points would be acceptable. Yeah, I don't um, know where they came up with that number, yeah, yeah, but 6%, you know. that's what they went with. Yep, that's that. what the numbers were based on. Exactly. Okay. So 618 patients were randomized with 308 in each group. Um, the population was 33% female, 32% non-white, median age of 42 years. 74% um, had CD4 counts above 500. Um, the baseline ART regimen seemed reasonable, and patients had been on them for an average of 4.3 years. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. 93% um, of patients completed the treatments, and uh, we'll talk a lot about adverse events here in a minute. Um, so, in the intention-to-treat analysis, uh, greater than 50 copies per ml of HIV-1 RNA was found in five of long-acting patients and three in the oral arm. That was that correlated to 1.6% in the long-acting arm and 1% in the oral arm. 
Um, that was an adjusted difference of 0.6 percentage points with a 95% confidence interval of negative 1.2 to 2.5. So those results met the pre-specified non-inferiority criteria for the primary endpoint. Mm -hmm. So non-inferior. Solid. Yep. Um, Long-acting therapy was non-inferior to oral therapy with respect to key, the key secondary endpoint that we talked about earlier with the HIV RNA level of less than 50 copies per ml. Um, numbers probably aren't that important. Um, and in subgroup analyses, there was no meaningful differences in virologic outcomes according to sex, third agent class, previous oral regimens, or baseline disease or demographic characteristics. So non-inferior, which is cool. 95% um, of the patients in the long-acting arm, however, and 71% of patients in the oral arms reported adverse events, and 83% of patients in the long-acting arm reported injection site-related adverse events. Mm -hmm. So 83% of patients had an injection site reaction. They were generally characterized, characterized as mild to moderate, and it only led to three participants in the long-acting group. Um, or excuse me, four withdrawals from a long-acting arm. Uh-huh. So, well, and it was mostly, like, pain. Yeah, mostly right? pain, which, which it should Which, if you're going to inject three milliliters of fluid into your gluteus, it's not going to feel good. What? <laughs> Agreed. So they do point out that there were injection site reactions, and, you know, 95% of patients with an adverse event is, is you know, high. Mm -hmm. Um but only four withdrawals. But those aren't like life-threatening adverse events. Right. It's like my butt hurts. <laughs> um, and notably, you know, at the end of the day, 86% of patients in the intention to treat analysis selected the injectable regimen over daily oral therapy as their preferred HIV treatment. And that's what really tells you what the mm -hmm. patients like. Yes. They, like. they preferred it. Even though they had to inject their bottoms, they preferred it. Exactly. So non-inferior, some injection site reactions, and um, patients preferred it. I think those are kind of the main takeaways. This was the phase three trial for this stuff. And, um, you know, we still have to do the phase four trials and, mm. you know, sort of get it out in, in the public. But we could see a little bit of a paradigm shift um, in this regard. Yeah. They do point out, or maybe it was the editorial that accompanied the article, they do point out that this was not studied in patients who may benefit the most from it. So that would be, you know, non-adhered patients, patients with right. um, GI absorption issues, um, you know, patients who would do better with an injection. Like this was stable patients on an oral regimen mm -hmm. um, who prefer the injection, but maybe it's best in other populations that weren't studied. Sure. Yeah, overall, I mean, the control group was, they were all very adherent. So mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. encouraging that it performed as well as an extremely adherent group mm -hmm. on oral therapy. Um, and then it looked like they had extended the trial, and now they're testing whether four weeks or eight weeks yeah. could work, mm -hmm. which is interesting. So we'll probably hear about that later. Yeah, um, and I think it's also worth mentioning in the same issue of the New England Journal that, that there was another article called Long Acting, Cabotegravir and Rilpivirin after oral induction for HIV-1 infection, which was looking at, excuse me, um, induction followed directly thereafter by injections. So not folks on stable mm. ART regimens, but, you know, diagnosed, induced on injectables, and they also were non-inferior. Um, so a little bit of a different patient population, but we may see more widespread use of, a, of injectable long-acting regimens for HIV in the future. Awesome. I'm all yeah. about the long acting yeah, injectables. For sure. I Agreed. wish our hospital would let us give them to patients, but I think they are more expensive. Mm -mm. 
There was like, a lot of no, the, you cannot give that patient Vivitrol. There was a lot about that in the literature too about drug companies and money and whatnot that we just sort of decided to ignore. It's yeah, on the no, Twitter. It's on the tweets. JAMA, yeah, JAMA's issue this week was all about drug companies and and money and it was interesting you know like there was one article about how much money does it really cost to like get a new drug to market and they looked at you know 60 something drugs over a few years and it was on average 925 billion i think was the number so you did i say billion yeah it was million i was gonna say yeah that sounds super high and it's not chump change no 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 so because you hear of $1 billion thrown around a lot, and it turns out it was actually billions fairly close billions to a billion. billion. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, if we switch to a single-payer healthcare system and we bring down drug prices, then they will no longer have the incentives to do research and development. And I think there's probably something to that, but I also think we could do a lot more public investment. That's true, and, yeah. And uh, maybe not extend their monopolies for so long. I don't know. There's lots of ways. You know ways. who is in jail I found out recently? Martin Scully. Yeah. Did you tell me that? <laughs> no. I don't know why. But Drug... he's not He's not in jail for that. No, no. He was Other in jail stuff. for, like, securities fraud. But yeah. he should be in jail. Well, it's not actually illegal to price gouge sick people. <laughs> it should be, though. Let me tell Moral you about court. it. Moral <laughs> court. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. All right. <laughs> All right. So, cool stuff. Uh, my article is called Effective Pregnenolone versus Placebo on Self-Reported Chronic Low Back Pain Among U.S. Military Veterans, a Randomized Clinical Trial. It was printed online March 2nd, 2020 in the JAMA Network Open. And the first author is Dr. Jennifer C. Naylor. And the group is from the Durham VA Healthcare System in Durham, North Carolina. So the question they're trying to answer is, does pregnenolone work better than placebo in treating low back pain in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan era veterans aged 18 to 65? Because um, that's the population they're taking care of. It's a very yeah. narrow population <laughs> by that definition. But So we all know that chronic low back pain is extremely challenging and dissatisfying to treat. It seems like nothing really works for it, and often the therapies are worse than the disease. Uh, There was a nice systematic review of randomized trials for treating low back pain in the Annals of Internal Medicine back in 2017, and they found some small benefit from NSAIDs and inconsistent benefit from so-called muscle relaxants and modest benefit from duloxetine. There was insufficient evidence to recommend gabapentin or pregabalin. So what do a lot of people often turn to? opioids and we all know how that turned out so you know there's been a huge increase in opioid related addiction and overdose deaths throughout the country Um, and i think in general most physicians are trying to stay away from starting opioids for chronic low back pain but obviously we need better safer therapies and so this trial is looking at pregnenolone which is a neurosteroid which i'd never heard of before but apparently it's metabolized to allopregnenolone, which is a GABA receptor modulator with analgesic, neuroprotective, neurotrophic, and anti-inflammatory properties. That sounds good. Yeah, it all sounds great. Slash essential oil-ish. Well, I don't know. So (laughs) clinicaltrials.gov actually has quite a few completed and active trials for this compound, and it's being tested in everything from schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, autism, traumatic brain injuries, alcohol use disorder, and marijuana dependence. So apparently a lot of people think it could potentially treat something. It's like vitamin D. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) Uh, 
So in this double-blinded study, they randomized Iraq and Afghanistan-era veterans with uh, chronic low back pain to either placebo or pregnenolone. And participants had to have uh, low back pain, which meant at the level of T6 or lower, and could not have signs of radiculopathy on exam or imaging. Uh, they, could, they could also not have fracture, severe spondylolisthesis, tumor, or abscess on imaging. And they excluded patients who could not walk without assistive devices or anyone who had received epidural steroids, facet blocks, nerve blocks, or other invasive procedures within the three months prior. So they had 52 patients randomized to placebo and 48 to the study drug. The average age was 37, and 89% of participants were male, which is not surprising from a VA study. 53% uh, were Caucasian, and 33% were African American. The primary outcome was change in average daily self-reported pain intensity score on an 11-point rating scale after four weeks of treatment, and they also had a primary outcome of self-reported pain intensity, or sorry, of, uh, of estimated average low back pain score since their prior visit, which they called pain recall. Hmm. So obviously it's tricky to do pain studies because you have to use some of these subjective measures. Very much so. This is kind of the best way that they could measure the patient's pain. So they also looked at some secondary outcomes of pain interference scores using the brief pain inventory scale as well as the effects on sleep, resilience, working memory, PTSD, executive function, and physical function. So pain ratings at baseline were 8% higher in the pregnenolone group with an average score of 5.24 compared to the placebo group, which had a 4.83. The unadjusted mean pain recall scores were 4.74 in the placebo group and 4.19 in the pregnenolone group. The least squares method difference in mean pain scores between groups at the final study visit was uh, minus 0.56 and it was 0.70 for pain recall reports, both of which were statistically significant. So patients also reported improvement in pain interference scores for work and activity. Those um, sound really significant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we said, they're dealing with like these subjective diary entries, but the numbers were significantly different. So the data scale mean change in pain diary scores reported by participants receiving pregnenolone was uh, 1.01, so they went from a baseline of 5.2 to 4.19 at visit mm, okay. 6. So over four weeks, their average score did go down, improved by 20%, compared to the placebo, which improved by 6%. So there was a placebo okay. effect yeah, yeah. on the placebo side. Their pain also improved, but to a much lesser degree. There were also very few adverse effects. Uh, overall, I think the strengths of this paper um, it's a prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, all the things you want mm -hmm. out of an RCT, right? Yep. Uh, pretty decent success or, um, you know, completion rate. They had 83% of participants finish the trial. Mm -hmm. I think the limitations are it's pretty short. It was only four mm -hmm. weeks. It's single-center, uh, mostly males. And mm -hmm. so I think this definitely would need to be replicated with the mm -hmm. uh, maybe a larger, more inclusive population that would be more generalizable. But otherwise, Pretty I think... Pretty small. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 100 patients. I think yeah. it's, you know, it's nice, though, that, that we're looking for other things out there to help treat chronic low back pain that are safe. Yeah, I do think, you know, like you've mentioned, pain is so subjective and the experience of pain on a day-to-day -day basis. 
seemingly very significantly, so it's just going to be inherently hard to study. But, yeah, you can't scoff a ton at a 20% reduction in a pain score, mm-hmm. especially, like you said, if it's safe and um, non-opiate. So yeah. kudos kudos to them. Yeah. We'll see uh, if it pans out. In, in the, mm-hmm. in the, this was a phase two, so obviously they still need to do phase three before they can get it yep. approved for, for that indication. But, yeah, we'll see yeah. what happens with that. All right. Okay, well, let's uh, refresh the old uh, Johns Hopkins dashboard here, see if there's any new diagnoses since we started. Oh, nope. keeping, it, keeping corona at bay. Sweet. COVID-19. Only 808 in the United States and only three in Utah. So Three? Well, We're up one, aren't we? No, there was one from the cruise ship and the, there's been what two is The diagnosed. diamond princess, the princess. Yeah. Princess. Anyway bad name (laughs) all right well uh thanks for uh making it to the end hey look we did it in less than 30 minutes so (laughs) uh, we'll uh, catch you guys next week bye bye